Okay, so again, welcome everybody to What Do They Teach Our Children? Israel's Intervention in American Social Studies Curriculum. My name is Jamil, and uh, I work with author and Palestinian justice activist Miko Peled. And I'm going to be opening this talk as well as assisting with the Q&A portion after the panel's discussion wraps up. So uh, I've still got folks trickling into the webinar, but uh, let's just go ahead and get started. Uh, in addition to this Zoom broadcast, we are also live streaming this to Miko's Facebook page. So if you wanna share it with uh, folks who didn't register ahead of time, or you just wanna send it to somebody real quick right now while you're on, you can let them know to head over to facebook.com slash Miko Peled official. Or if they just get in that Facebook search bar at the top, hit Miko Pellet, you'll find it, no problem. And they will be able to watch the live stream from there. Um, so this is part one of a two-part webinar series that, I, again, is being hosted by Miko Pellet. In addition to having Miko lead the panel, we are, really fortunate enough, we are really fortunate to have an excellent guest panel with us today to dive into this topic. Uh, these are people who have been involved in local campaigns to combat Israel bias in our K through 12 classrooms, including educators, grassroots organizers, and law experts. So with that said, I'm gonna introduce you to our distinguished panel, and they will also be uh, expanding on this uh, during the discussion as well. But we have uh, Jean Trebolsi, who is mm -hmm. an education committee member at the Virginia Coalition for Human Rights. We have Dr. Samia Schumann, uh, Advisory Committee to the California Ethnic Studies Curriculum. And we have Zoha Khalili, uh, Staff Attorney at Palestine Legal. So welcome to you guys, and thank you again thank you. for committing your time and energy to this event. Uh, we really hope that this kickstarts more discussions and work on what I think we can all agree is an aspect of Palestinian justice that doesn't see as much daylight as we would all like. So today's discussion is centered around special interest pro-Israel groups and their various interventions into the American institution of education, especially K through 12. Uh, this discussion is not really gonna cover any much university related. So this is everything from influencing curriculum via textbooks, uh, censorship efforts within the classrooms, essentially propaganda campaigns. I mean, anything that would hinder critical discussion of Israel in the classroom from a historical and social perspective. And it's not just curriculum that is being affected either. We've seen dozens of incidents resulting in both students and teachers that are censored, silenced, or intimidated just for simply recognizing Palestine's existence and recognizing its culture in, inside the classroom. So I hope you all are looking forward to learning about what these fights look like, what we're up against as a movement, and hopefully some action items that the panel can offer us to, to get more involved in this particular subject. Um, so before I turn it over, uh, some quick event Zoom housekeeping. Uh, we're going to keep this event to under two hours with the first 60 to 80 minutes dedicated to the panel discussion. But we also wanna make room for Q and A's, questions from the audience, uh, once that panel discussion is wrapped up. So you'll see a Q and A button on your Zoom window toolbar. Uh, on the bottom of the screen. So if you have a question at any point in the panel, you can uh, use that Q&A tool to ask your question and our event administrator, Michael, uh, will be collecting those throughout the event and then I'll be uh, proposing these questions to the panel. So we'll try to get through as many as we can. 
Um, if you're having any te technical difficulties or want to comment about what is being discussed with the other attendees, we recommend you use the chat room. We do not recommend you use the chat room to submit Q&A questions. Really use that Q&A button. That's going to be the best way we're going to be able to keep track of all those. Um, but Michael's going to be responding in the chat room as well as myself, and we'll be trying to um, reference links and resources that the panelists uh, discuss. So uh, we're going to make sure that you're taken care of for all that. And I think that should pretty much do it for the housekeeping. So I'm going to go ahead and pass it off to Miko Pellet to get this discussion started. Thank you, Jamil. And uh, thank you, Michael, for behind the scenes. And uh, Zoha, Jean, and uh, Samia, thank you very, very much for taking the time to be part of this. Um, you know, I, I, I'm late to this issue, to be, to be quite honest. Um, but uh, I remember many, many years ago, um, I, I used to, when my kids were in high school and middle school and high school, I looked through their history and social studies books just to see what was said about this issue, the issue of Palestine, Israel, the Middle East, in ancient times, just to get a feel of what is being taught. And I was pretty shocked. I remember that um, my first big shock was realizing that everything that's pretty much being taught in terms of ancient, the ancient Middle East um, is really from, uh, from the Bible. It's really all from the Old Testament. Things that have nothing to do with history, uh, talking about figures and, 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 and kings and prophets that we have no historical proof that ever existed. And why, are they be, why is this being taught in, in social studies? Why is this being taught as part of history? Uh, and it's all very, uh, you know, from, from the Old Testament, so very Jewish kind of uh, centered. And, um, and then I remember thinking, you know, there's all this debate, it used to be a, a much bigger debate, but it still goes on about whether in public schools should teach creationism or, or evolution. And I thought, well, all of this stuff is biblical anyway. It's getting away with it. Might as well, if you're going to teach all this biblical stuff in social studies, may as well teach uh, creationism. I mean, it's already there. I mean, there's already a foot in there. Of course, I'm saying it sarcastically. Um, so that was, that was the, I was really shocked. And then uh, I remember looking at my kid's AP World History uh, book, textbook in high school. And, you know, it's a book this big uh, about the entire world history taught uh, very, very quickly. And again, all the, the, the things that relate to Israel, Palestine, the Middle East have nothing to do with history. And I remember speaking to the uh, history teachers and they were like, well, you know, they know what they know. And in cases where they can interject, they do. But mostly they rely on the curriculum and on the textbooks. Um, and then I, uh, I heard a little bit, you know, bits and pieces about, about um, the kinds of uh, attempts to influence uh, the curriculum. And uh, in my talks, I always remind people when they think about the Israeli lobby, when they think about pro-Israeli uh, influence in America, they think about a bunch of people in suits walking around uh, Washington, D.C., trying to influence uh, members of Congress, senators. But really, the real influence, the real lobbying takes place at a much more local, um, and much more foundational uh, level. So it's local politicians, um, uh, city council members, people running for city council, 
I remember uh, a long time ago being approached by a, a city council member of a very small city around San Diego, telling me that they were the entire city council was invited to a junket to Israel, and what do I think? I mean, that sort of thing. Uh, but it's really thanks to Gene and uh, and a friend of mine, Ramzi, who works with Gene uh, with the Virginia Coalition for Human Rights, that I became aware of the level, of the depth of the intervention by the pro-Israeli groups in the social studies programs when it comes to teaching about Israel, teaching about Palestine, teaching about the Middle East. And then, of course, you know, starting to investigate, starting to learn more and more and more, um, and approaching more and more people is how I came up with this, uh, or we came up with this great, uh, with great panel. And again, thank you all for, for your willingness to participate. And the title, you know, we came up with, it's kind of a scary title, really. What are they teaching our children? And, you know, what are they teaching our children? I mean, the, really, the, the social studies curriculum is under attack, and nobody knows. It's done in a way that is so civil, you know, that is so well-planned and well-thought-out, and, 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 and uh, that uh, is really, really, really alarming. And again, I'm new to this, but everything I've learned over the last few weeks and talking to people on the panel and others, people are going to be on the next panel next week, um, is really frightening. Mm -hmm. um, and so we came, we came up with these three questions that uh, I'm going to ask each one, each one of the panelists to um, answer. Um, and the first one is what evidence do we have that really that demonstrate that these pro-Israeli special interest groups are uh, applying their influence um, into the social studies curriculum? And um, I'll, start, uh, I'll start with perhaps with Eugene, and if you don't mind, maybe talking a little bit about yourself and about the coalition first, and then uh, go ahead and start talking about the evidence. Sure thing. Well, good evening, everyone. I'm Jean Trabalsi from Front Royal, Virginia. I'm a retired educator, taught English as a second language for 16 years in Arlington County. Uh, I'm a member of a group called the Virginia Coalition for Human Rights. Uh, we believe that Israel-Palestine is a human rights issue that requires an academic debate. And any efforts to stop this debate, we would certainly oppose. But in order to have a debate, you'd have to have some sort of factual knowledge, unbiased knowledge about what's actually going on in Israel-Palestine, especially since 1948. Now, our colleagues, many of whom are university professors, they tell me that when their incoming freshman class comes in, they have no idea about what's going on in the Middle East. They know it's a desert region. There are two people, one's Palestinian, one's Israeli, and they think the Palestinians are taking away land from the Israelis, but they're not sure. It's kind of hazy. And so we started to wonder, well, what's going on in history in high school for these kids to be so ignorant? Um, and what initially happened that really sparked our interest was this. Oops. Go back. This was a, uh, an announcement in uh, early 2018 of a webcast hosted by the Jewish Community Public Affairs Council. And it advertised a webcast 
with the Institute for Curriculum Services. It's the first time we'd heard about it. And we listened to it and we found out that they were doing considerable efforts to change textbooks throughout the nation, especially in Virginia. Now, ICS on their website states that it's a nonprofit organization founded in 2005 dedicated to improving the quality of K-12 textbooks on Jews, Judaism, and Israel. And in the webcast, the director, Eliza Kramer Elias, claims that ICS has made over 11,000 edits to textbooks, 80% of which have been accepted. Uh, we believe that ICS is not a true education outfit. We believe that they are partisan, that they are public affairs and advocacy group. Let's see the evidence. On their website, you'll see highlighted in yellow that ICS is financially structured under the JCRC of San Francisco. It is a 501c3 entity. And that if you want to support ICS, you've got to write your check out to the JCRC. They are not independent. And you've got to write ICS on the memo line. So right away, uh, if you go to the JCRC website, it states that it recognizes Israel's integral role in modern Jewish identity. So JCRC, I'm going to repeat that, recognizes Israel's integral role in modern Jewish identity. What would Rabbi Shapiro say about that, Miko? Great, I'm writing this down as we speak. What would Rabbi Shapiro say about that? Anyway, so JCRC articulates its commitment to Zionism in the Bay's area Jewish community. Another piece of evidence is the Jewish community public relations, public affairs. Now, JCPA is the national hub of this huge network, representing over 120 local Jewish community relations councils and 17 nationwide. Um, they advocate for Israel's quest for security. And highlighted in yellow, you see that they do support the ICS initiative and um, they give them money every year. Also the Schusterman Family Foundation. I don't know if you've heard of Charles Schusterman and his family foundation. They give $200,000 to ICS every year and they are a huge uh, uh, donator to the uh, it's called the Israeli Education Foundation. They're the ones that send freshman congressmen to Israel every year. So you'll see that ICS is also uh, uh, being funded by the Schusterman Family Foundation, along with other Israel foundations, including Honeymoon Israel. It's all about the journey. Yeah. And so, this is what we claim is evidence that ICS is not a nonpartisan uh, uh, group. We feel that ICS is enmeshed with and funded by Israel affinity groups. 
that drive their pro-Israel advocacy. Uh, we believe that that results in biased and inaccurate textbook edits and teacher training. And in the next segment, in your next question, we'll take a look at their tactics. Thank you. Okay, Samia, go ahead. Um, if you wanna tell us a, a little bit about yourself and your work and then what evidence do you know, or you know, reply to the first question, what evidence is that demonstrates um, their influence, pro-Israeli Sure, so I've been a public school educator for 22 years. I spent 16 years in the classroom and then have spent my last six years as an administrator all of that time in um, high school, I am a social studies teacher. So I actually want to use my personal experience um, to kind of build off what Jan shared around the JCRC. So um, part of my teaching assignment has always been to teach modern world history or contemporary world studies. And at my second school where I taught for 11 years, I actually taught um, a unit on well, when we studied development of democracy, I kind of covered things around um, Arab Spring, you know, pre and post, you know, U.S. invasion of Iraq. And then um, I, at my school, taught freshmen and sophomores. So I taught the freshmen and then I get them for a second year. And a lot of our units are pretty aligned across um, the school. So um, part of California social studies standards are to kind of teach about post-World War II and Cold War, you know, um, history. So I did teach a Palestine-Israel unit called Palestine-Israel Through Multiple Narratives. So in my time at my second high school, I somehow caught the attention of the JCRC, the Jewish Community Relations Council. And that when I kind of played it through, I figured out how or which events kind of led um, me to catch their attention, which was I had a particular student who happened to be Jewish, super sweet girl. Um, I also, and I had a great relationship with the family because I, co I coached soccer. So I coached the older daughter for three years, but I never taught her. So I taught the younger daughter. One day I opened email early morning. Oh my God, Ms. Sherman, can I come talk to you? It's really important. Sure, of course, no problem. Me and my sister, she comes in in the morning and says that um, the previous afternoon when she was at Hebrew school, somehow they were having a conversation around Palestine and Israel, and she raised her hand to ask a question to challenge something the rabbi had said. Um, when she did that, and I don't really remember, I mean, this was like uh, probably a good 11, almost 11 years ago that this started, um, he kind of was like, well, where did you learn that? Or why do you think that? And, oh, okay, in my social studies class, we're studying this. We used to keep notebooks. Uh, we call them interactive notebooks in my classroom. So he asked to see it. And she's like, yeah, no. she didn't have it with her. And she's like, well, I have to talk to my parents. So rabbi calls parents and a copies. So she's telling me all this. My mom's going to call you later. So mom is like, we are absolutely not going to give um, him the notebook. We have one, we've seen everything you're teaching. We have no problem with what you're teaching. We don't question it. We're so glad that our daughter um, is thinking about this and studying this and having, you know, multiple perspectives. So um, we told him to contact the principal if he you know, wanted something. 
So I go to tell my principal, FYI, just in case, you know, X, Y, and Z is happening, um, if you get a call. That kind of died there in terms of like that particular like student. And I feel bad because she was just like, I'm so sorry that it, and what it did is really get her to think about like, okay, I'm learning about this in my class and all these different views and perspectives in the history. And now this is happening to me in my personal life and able to make connections, right? I don't need her to teach that. She's seeing it and thinking about it. So I think that's how I got, um, onto the JCRC's radar potentially. But what happened is I had been working on different projects. One, um, IJAN, I met somebody from IJAN, the International Jewish Anti-Zionist Network, and she sent me an email. She's like, oh, heads up, you're mentioned in um, this JCRC newsletter. And it kind of had all these different things about whatever, a dance being um, scheduled and them, I don't know if, if people are familiar, but there was an Oakland, museum that was going to have a display of artwork by Gaza and that got under attack and it was shut down so it had all that and then in the last paragraph it says we've had very successful conversations with blank principal at this school about Samia Showman and her curriculum oh that's interesting so I walked into my principal's office and printed it I'm like oh by the way have you been are you talking about me with people and like not letting me know well where did you get this it doesn't matter where I got it if you're having conversations about my classroom, my curriculum, you have a right to tell me. So that actually ended up leading to the JCRC putting in a request to my school district for all of my curriculum um, on Palestine, Israel. I teach at a public school. So everything, reading, worksheets, questions, this, that, I submitted all of it. Um, and so I just, one of the things I wanna point out is Maybe the JCRC found out about me from this rabbi. Maybe not. Maybe somebody, some other way. I've done trainings all over the country, and so they could have just Google searched or found out a different way. I've never had a formal complaint by a student in my classroom. Um, I have taught all kinds of students. Not too, we've never had too many Arab students, but like lots of Jewish students, lots of them coming out of um, Jewish day schools. Zionist, anti-Zionist, everything in the middle, um, and I've never had a complaint because I've worked really hard in developing a curriculum that puts information in front of students and lets them make their own analysis. And even if your analysis is that you're Zionist and you're gonna, then that's your analysis. Like, um, so, and I think really in thinking about it, I, so that was the beginning of basically eight years of the JCRC coming after me every two years. So I would teach it every two years. And the last time I taught at this particular high school, so they turned in a dossier to my district, 200 pages of all the complaints they had um, around a reading. Oh, why does this reading um, refer to Palestinian political prisoners as martyrs? That's unacceptable. It has to be struck out. Why this? That every little thing, like line edits through the entire thing. And my response to my district was, if there's something you want me to take out, please let me know. Put it in writing, tell me why, and then I will do it. So over the course of this eight year, kind of every two years is happening, my district did never ask for anything to be taken out of the curriculum. Although the last time I taught the curriculum, I was observed every single day by an administrator for six weeks and sometimes twice a day. Um, 
their reasoning for observing me is to make sure that all students felt safe participating and could voice their views. Um, what I really learned later is they wanted to make sure that, you know, Zionist students felt safe um, giving their views because um, the culminating project in my class was around groups of kids um, represented different stakeholders in the conflict. US, Israel, Palestine got to choose who they were representing. Were they the Palestinian Authority? Were they not? Um, I think Lebanon, Egypt, Saudi Arabia. Long story short, I had a student who was pretty Zionist and during, he happened to choose, they chose from a hat, he happened to choose Israel. So during his presentation, he was just like, and Palestinian kids are taught to hate and to kill all this, was spewing all this hate. Well, one of the student's moms, who is also a Jewish family, is like, are you going to stop him? And I looked at her and said, honestly, no, I'm not, because X, Y, and Z. And I feel like I was just caught. After that, he made a group of students feel very uncomfortable. They were just a diverse group of students who were then telling their advisor, we have an advisory system at Hillsdale, about the experience. And, she's, and she knew what was happening. She goes, well, you should go tell the principal. So the principal comes back and tells me, well, I'm not gonna, so I said, oh, I heard these students came. She goes, yeah, I'm not gonna contact ex student's mom because you know, she's a piece of work and I don't want you to have to deal with her. I go to her, you can contact her. I have an email from her saying, I am one of the only teachers in addition to this physics teacher um, who she respects at her school for pushing her kid. So I'm not worried about her coming at me. She never did. Um, so really, it was about a particular group of students feeling safe to talk about and express their opinion, not all students. Um, and so I, I think, you know, I've always changed my kind of curriculum to update and uh, um, include different events that had happened. But like, I always felt like I consistently played down the Palestinian narrative because I didn't want to be like, oh, the Palestinian teacher is trying to give this Palestinian narrative. And, you know, when I say multiple perspectives, it's like we know among Palestinians, there are a wide variety of perspectives. Among um, Israelis, Jewish Israelis, non -Jewish, there is a wide variety of perspectives. Um, and really, I, in trying to appear so balanced, right, I feel like I diminished that narrative um, to protect myself from attacks, although that didn't really work. Um, and so that's kind of one thing, right? And I, yeah, went through being observed all the time. It's like makes you, I cried in bathrooms between periods and, um, you know, constantly questioned my own self, even though for two years, like this unit came last. And it was a continuum of social justice curriculum I had been teaching, right? And using that lens. Um, the last kind of quick story I want to tell is I was, as introduced, a member of the California Model Ethnic Studies Curriculum Committee this past year, of which, if you've also followed that, there have been 20,000 plus public comments made um, with concerns around the inclusion of anything that has to do with Palestine or anyone linked to it. Edward Said, Rashida Talib, Linda Sarsour, BDS, they don't want any of it. Um, so in the course of that, multiple articles came out in different publications. Um, based, even though we were an 18 member panel, of course it was my fault that anything about Arabs or Palestinians got included um, in the inclusion of that. And so kind of one example 
um, of a headline from Campus Watch that was published in August 2019 said, the fix was in from the very beginning. The 18 member curriculum committee tasked with writing the new ethnic studies curriculum was peppered with diehard Israel haters, including Palestinian American educator, Samia Shoman. And then it had some more sentences and then it says, before then she taught high school social science in the Bay Area and poisoned minds for 16 years. So that is my kind of personal response in terms of what evidence exists because I know I'm not the only one. And I know I'm not the only one in California um, or in this country, but you get on the radar and then it is full on, you know, personal and professional attack. Wow, you know, Sami, it sounds like we've gone from, it sounds like you've gone from intervening or trying to influence a social studies curriculum to actually targeting anybody who dares to challenge their narrative particular narrative, even though it sounds like you've really bent over backwards to, um, to maintain what, you know, the holy balance, so to speak. Um, and, and again, this is, this is extremely disturbing because, um, well, you are Palestinian, so why should you not have a Palestinian perspective? Just like, you know, when you look at all these different groups that Jean uh, presented, they are Jewish. Many of them have Israelis embedded in them. Uh, they are clearly supporting Israel, and their perspective is 100% pro-Israel. They're not trying to create any kind of balance at all. They have no problem with not having a balance, but you as a teacher are not allowed to have that a little bit of an imbalance and show some preference to your own identity and your own people who are, are you know, suffering, as we know. Yeah. And uh, Miko, if I can just intervene really quick, because I see somebody said that I had a huge Palestinian flag in the classroom. How is that diminishing the Palestinian narrative? That's actually not my classroom. That was my colleague's classroom. Um, and he actually ended up having to take everything having to do with Palestine down. So I know there's lots of pictures on both Campus Watch and um, the AMSHA website. He kind of jokes every time I'm like, by the way, I'm still being pictures of your classroom. I'm still being attributed to those. And he's like, hashtag face news, ha ha ha. But uh, so I just wanted to clarify for uh, the person who put that in the chat, that that is not my, was not my classroom. It is a colleague of mine and don't worry, he had to take it down. Um, even though he didn't have to take down the seven other flags of various countries around the world that he had up. Well, thanks for clarifying that because I just saw that in the chat as well. So thanks for clarifying that. Yeah, I mean, uh, so in other words, that it was a flag among many other flags. It's not like there was a massive Palestinian flag covering an entire wall or anything. Um, and that is, that is troubling too because you do see, quite often you see classrooms or, or halls in schools where they have flags from all different countries and somehow the Palestinian flag is always not there and if it is there it creates um somebody comes up and creates a problem um Zoha, i want to turn to you um about the evidence uh that we have that demonstrates that pro-israeli groups are um or special interest groups are trying to apply influence but uh please talk a little bit about yourself before that and please give a shout out to uh palestine legal who for those of us who are in the world of, of, of Palestine activists and, and uh, so forth. Uh, can't say enough and thank uh, Palestine League enough for the fantastic work they do 
and the crucial work that they do in, in, in supporting activists, student activists, and so on. So feel free to, um, you know, to give a little shout out. Go ahead. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I, I just saw in the chat, uh, Michael shared uh, the place to access Palestine Legal if anyone needs legal support around similar issues to what we're talking about here. Um, so I'm an attorney at Palestine Legal, and what we do is we provide legal support to activists in the United States who are speaking about Palestine and are targeted for censorship, punishment, and just getting treated differently um, because of that, or targeted because of their criticism of Israel. Um, and so we have kind of a bird's eye view of, of what's going on here. Um, you know, unlike the other panelists who shared their personal perspectives, I don't have a personal story to share here. Um, but, you know, our work at Palestine Legal has largely focused on colleges and universities. Both faculty and students have been very engaged in the issue of Palestinian rights and have been targeted for that. But we've seen in recent years that there has been this increase in targeting of uh, high schools, especially um, the history curriculum at high schools and his history teachers in particular. Um, and so one example I wanted to share of the, the multifaceted attacks that, that we've seen um, is something out of uh, Newtown, Massachusetts. Um, it's not a case that we were uh, individually involved in, um, but it's something that has dragged on for almost a decade longer than Palestine Legal has existed. Um, and so what happens in Newtown, Massachusetts, they have, you know, they have a robust curriculum. They, they teach people critical thinking and independent um, decision-making. And so, you know, for example, they'll assign a, an essay that has a few lines about Palestine, and that's the type of thing that has um, attracted the attacks that they have faced. Um, so one example of what had happened was one teacher attended a workshop by a group that received some funding from the Qatar Foundation. Um, so that's alongside funding that they got from the state of Massachusetts. They got funding from two different state agencies. Um, so this is, you know, a group that, that does educational work and gets funding for that from a variety of sources. But because some of that funding for the group that had put on that workshop that one teacher at the within the school district had attended, um, there is this right-wing anti-Muslim group that publishes, published an article with a headline like, foreign terrorist funders are um, getting US public schools to teach propaganda. And so just like taking like one potentially attenuated connection to a Middle Eastern country and you know branding that as a link to terrorism. It's all very Islamophobic, it's very racist. Um, and, but you know, even though these, these things are, are clearly spurious and attenuated, um, authorities feel the need to take these complaints really seriously. So in 2013, the state actually investigated the curriculum at the school and they found that there was nothing wrong with it. They found that it was in line with the state's policies and with any applicable laws there. Um, but that didn't stop the attacks. Um, so they, there was continued attacks in 2018. They petitioned the district to um, overhaul the Middle East uh, the, the Middle East curriculum on campus and to fire the superintendent for not having done that earlier. And that was this drawn out, um, uh, this <laughs> drawn out process. I apologize I, if I mis mispronounce Newton. Um, and so uh, there was this drawn out process and they had like this, this hearing about the curriculum, like this four hour long meeting, but it actually, because the, the teachers had taught critical thinking, the alumni of the school had, had spoken out in support of, of their, their teachers. And there was a, like a huge outpouring of support for the teachers and the, the school district did not decide to you know, overhaul the curriculum or punish any of the teachers. Um, another thing that happened last year, um, they shipped out students from 
four hours each way from this private Jewish school in New York whose mission includes instilling in their students um, a, an attachment to the state of Israel. And so they had these students from this other school four hours away come line up in front of the school to, you know, give the, the perspective that students were opposed to this curriculum, but, you know, because of the hard work and the well-grounded scholarly work that the teachers were doing within the district, they had to actually ship those students from a different school that had nothing to do with what was going on. And that was part of a publicity campaign around a lawsuit that they were filing against the school districts. And in that case, the, school, the lawsuit was not just against the district, but it was against uh, principals at two of the schools and against four teachers within the district. And, you know, that creates this really nerve-wracking situation of you're personally being sued for, you know, potentially, you know, I don't know what the, the money that was at stake in this lawsuit, but, you know, having to hire an attorney is an expensive process. And so, you know, there is a lot of personal risk that these teachers are facing for simply, you know, trying to, to provide a diverse perspective to their students and not toe the line on Israel. Um, so in that situation, the district really robustly defended itself. And, um, you know, the, the teacher union also uh, intervened in the lawsuit and, and shared a friend of the court brief, um, the local ACLU, the local National Lawyers Guild, local clergy. Um, they, they shared their perspective with the court explaining why this is such a problematic lawsuit. And without even a judge having to make a decision, the people who had sued the school district actually voluntarily dismissed the lawsuit. And, you know, that's kind of a success story, but, you know, there were so much resources that were going into the process of defending that lawsuit. And those are resources that are not going to the, the students that are, you know, in that district to learn. Um, our schools are already under-resourced. Our teachers have an exhausting job, and now they're having to fight these battles alongside. Um, at that, that four-hour hearing in 2018, one of the teachers that was under attack actually said, you know, we teachers, we have lessons to prep. We have students to teach tomorrow, and it's time to get ready for that job, our real job. Let's go get ready for class. And, you know, that's a really important message that we're hearing from the teachers. You know, even if they want to resist, it is wearing them down to face these attacks. And it's so important for us as community members to show up and support these teachers um, so they don't feel pressure to, you know, keep their head down and not rock the boat. Yeah. So that's it for me. That's, 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 that's one of the ways, um, it's, it's done by many groups, really, uh, the, this, this idea that, you know, to wear people out because the, the resources that it takes to defend yourself in, in a court of law, to hire a lawyer, like to say, the hours and hours and hours of, of uh, worrying and then the hours and time you have to invest that takes away from your real work. That is, that is a well-known tactic. It works, uh, it's like, it's like, um, uh, you see, you see that with whistleblowers that have gone through different uh, types of processes and things like that. This is quite well known. It's like a war of attrition, um, and whoever's got the deeper pockets, uh, you know, can afford to do that. Um, so let's move on to um, let's move on to the next question, which is uh, what tactics uh, do we know that are being used in order to uh, to do what they what we're claiming that they're doing, which is uh, influencing or attempting to influence um, social studies curriculum, history uh, textbooks, and so forth. So, Jean, you want to uh, you want to go ahead? Yes, I'd like to still focus on ICS, the Institute Curriculum for Services in San Francisco, and I'd like to talk to you about the tactics that they use. Okay. Hmm. 
Uh, here you see the uh, web page from ICS. Uh, ICS uh, develops teacher training modules in which they train teachers on site and online. And uh, for the on-site workshops, they make it very attractive for teachers. They pay them a stipend and they give them continuing education credits from Portland State University. Now, if you're a teacher, you know you need 190 credits every five years in order to get recertified. Now, I don't remember in my 16 workshop, except maybe, you know, from the district itself, but not from the vendor. And um, so they make it very attractive. Um, on the slide, uh, on the far left, you see really their, um, their signature module, I would say. It's uh, called Teaching the Arab-Israeli Conflict and Peace Process. There are five lessons. Uh, they offer an overview of the conflict from the birth of Zionism to the present day. Now, the gist of all of these models is they use primary sources and they spin off lesson plans from these sources, but it's selective in what primary sources they use. So if you didn't know any Middle Eastern history, you wouldn't know what's missing. Um, and most social studies teachers really don't know Middle East history in depth. So for instance, during the Arab-Israeli conflict, you would see colonial documents that talk about broken promises to the Arabs and broken promises to the Jews. But there you would not see the white paper of 1939 where the British government says, oh, by the way, we support an independent Palestinian state. So you have to be very careful of these modules. They're extremely selective. The middle module is very interesting called Environmental Challenges and Cooperation. I think the title tells it all. It romanticizes the getting together of hostile warring parties and trying to save the environment. Um, it, one of the lessons is called the Red Sea, Dead Sea Canal that some people have heard about. Um, I don't know, is, is it finished, Miko? Is the Red Sea, Dead Sea Canal actually in reality now? No, not to my knowledge, no. I see. Well, ICS touts this as a model of cooperation between hostile parties and a model for future peacemaking. In reality, according to the Palestine Institute for Biodiversity, this is a catastrophe its impact on the valley and endangered species and the coral reefs. Now again, the primary documents that are missing are the documents about how Israel has destroyed the environment in the Middle East, um, bringing in these fast-growing European pine trees, which have uh, ruined the soil, leveling the 500 villages. So we don't see any of that, the diversion of the Jordan River, the draining of the Hula wetlands, and the placing of settlements on high ground and all the erosion comes down. Amigo, do you know a man by the name of Alan Tal? Alan Tal. He's the founder of the Israeli Union for Environmental Defense. And he's been presented with many, many medals from the Israeli ministry. He quotes, it's a Zionist paradox. We came here to redeem a land and we end up contaminating it. So that's from a Zionist leader. 
So, you know, be careful of these modules. They look attractive, but they're incomplete. We believe that these modules use only documents that shore up the Zionist narrative. They offer an incomplete picture. Is it propaganda? That's what we ask. Now, this is the impact of ICS. This is directly from their website. I think the icons show what they said that they have done. The teachers have participated in over 6,000 trainings in over 90 cities. 11 million students have been impacted. <coughs> 50 states have benefited from improved instruction. Uh, they also say on the website that they've sent their trainers to over 100 conferences in the United States. Remember the National Conference for Social Studies I was talking about before. Last year it was in Texas. And uh, in Texas, ICS presented twice, and there were over 16 sessions on the Holocaust. I went to uh, the Virginia uh, Conference on Social Studies last year in Williamsburg, Virginia. They had two sessions there, ICS, one called The Longest Hatred, which was a history of anti-Semitism in Europe. And the other one was called Teaching About Religion in the Classroom. My Colleagues who went there said that their questions were not answered or they were dodged by the ICS presenters. They were simply pro forma sort of presentations with handouts contained in glossy folders, the goal of which was to promote the ICS workshops. Besides the teacher training, ICS does textbook edits. And that really gets to the heart of my presentation. This is a cover letter signed by the heads of three JCRCs in Virginia, Tidewater, Richmond, and Greater Washington. It's a letter that thanks the Virginia Department of Education for working with them in the past. And highlighted in the letter, you'll see in particular, we'd like to thank Pearson and McGraw-Hill for the many improvements it made to their textbooks based on earlier ICS recommendations. So not only did ICS make hundreds of edits in the 2017 adoption, but seven years earlier in 2000, they also made edits. And that's why the textbooks are just such a mess right now. Um, you should know that ICS works very, very hard. They're very well funded and you're going to find out next week from Alex how when they approached the adoption of textbooks in Texas, they prepared for five years and they got more than one million dollars to work on the edits for Texas because they know the way Texas goes, so goes the nation. So I'm just telling you what we're up against. This is uh, highly organized. They've been founded since 2005 and um, we have a lot of catch up work to do. Here's an example of an edit, an ICS edit. If you look at the bolded word change, 
you'll see that the ongoing conflict, actually, I can't see the whole thing there. Basically, they want you to take, do you see where the word occupied territories is crossed out? Everywhere in all of those edits, they do not want you to use the word occupied territories. And all the underlined phrases are what you would substitute the word control of, took control of, captured, but the word occupied is never to be used. That is crossed out in all the edits. And they put comments for each edit. The word occupied territories is a politicized term and is inappropriate for public school text. The text should use the phrase West Bank and Gaza. And these are some of the themes of the edits. As I mentioned before, occupied is never used. Settlers is a forbidden word. They don't like anyone to use that word. You have to change that to communities. Wall becomes the security fence and so forth and so on. Another theme is uh, you blame the Arabs for everything. The Arabs started everything. It's never the Israelis fault, despite irrefutable evidence that it is. They discourage students from conducting open internet research. Um, because you never know what you're going to find. Change labels on the maps, and they delete all references to the word Palestine. Every time you see the word Palestine, the E is knocked off and it's changed to Palestinian. You can talk about Palestinians, but you can't talk about Palestine. I have to say that the edits about other subjects like Judaism, the ancient Middle East, uh, words about grammar, um, dating problems may be okay. I'm just talking about the edits about the modern Middle East. And that ends my uh, segment about the tactics. Thank you. Thank you, Jean. You know this, um the themes of the edits in this last, in your last slide, um, not using occupied territories, not using settlers and settlements, um, is really quite troubling. What I find interesting is the, the issue of the maps, because if you look at maps up to, any maps of the region up to May 15th, 1948, it's called Palestine. There's Palestine everywhere, maps that were drawn by anyone in anywhere. Is Palestine. Um, you know, if you go to, uh, uh, to Monticello, to um, uh, Thomas Jefferson's house, when you walk into the foyer, there's a big map of Africa. And just north and east of Africa, there's a big stretch of land, and it says in huge letters, Palestine. I'm surprised mm -hmm. nobody's uh, demanded that they remove it. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's really interesting that any map that was drawn before May 15, 1948, is now censored, is now not permitted because it might offend somebody, which is, it's really quite a, absolutely ridiculous, a country that was called Palestine. And now we know because Nurma Salha, a Palestinian uh, um, historian from the um, University of London, published a book a year or two ago, 
which is titled Palestine, a 4,000 year history, and demonstrates how Palestine has been called Palestine for, for close to 4,000 years up until May 15th, 1948, when all of that history was forgotten. So students are supposed to not learn anything about Palestine prior to 1948. Um, and, and that's, of course, very troubling. And of course, we know that maps are a great tool uh, to push forward all kinds of political agendas. And certainly we can see that they're using, um, that they're using this here. Um, well, I just want to come on. I mean, that is the goal of the Israeli narrative, to erase Palestine. Yeah. And to erase, to erase here in the United States. In other words, every Palestinian lived experience. Yes, not only over there, but even over here. So that, you know, when, when people graduate from high school and go to college, they're already indoctrinated. If they mm -hmm. choose a life of politics, they're already indoctrinated. They don't need, you know, to, to be taught and, 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 and uh, convinced that the Zionist narrative is the right narrative. They learned it in school, they saw it in church, like the synagogue or whatever, and that's kind of what they know to be true. Um, and of course, that's very troubling. That's what we're talking about, about all this. Uh, Zohar, let me turn to you about the second, uh, second question uh, regarding the tactics that are being used. I, I just want to make sure I'm not taking Samia's place, if you prefer to, to go now. Okay, yeah, sure, Sabi, I'm sorry. You're, you're right, my mistake. Yeah. That's okay. Uh, I it was fine either way. I think um, what I want to share really parallels with what Jan was sharing, though, because I feel like I know that the ICS was behind some of uh, working with the JCRC when my curriculum was under um, attack. And I just, what is happening is really a microcosm of kind of what is happening um, in Palestine and Israel, which is a systemic erasure and oppression of Palestinians and their narrative no matter what and and the reason I say that is um, when my curriculum for all those years um, was under attack there are many teachers in our district who teach Palestine Israel um, in the California framework we are supposed to teach nation building post World War II um, and Cold War so the lots of us teach these units, but I was the only one whose curriculum um, needed to be turned in. And then it went to the county and the county is like, yeah, we're not really positioned to kind of, I don't know, I think my district wanted somebody to rubber stamp it. So then my district outsourced it to three different professors, one at USC, one at UC Davis. I forgot where the third one is. I try to kind of still have PTSD. Um, so I was going to pull out all the documents from my box in the garage. I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to do that to myself because what they really do is attack you personally and professionally. Um, and, you know, things I see and I saw after the ethnic studies curriculum, model curriculum came out and all the headlines, I'm anti-Israel, I'm anti-Semitic. And that's the worst. That's the piece that, you know, really like hurts because I'm not, right? And you, nobody wants to be called um, that and you see parallels in various people's experience. Oh, she's um, a so Southern California. I've never been, a, I've taught at two schools in my whole life and they're both in the Bay Area. Um, and so all these kinds of pieces, right? Somebody referenced the pictures and the flags. Those are not in my classroom. Um, and so I think, you know, the tactic is fear, right? Making you so nervous that you're like, you know what? I teach a different nation building um, because this is a headache. Right. I don't want to deal with this. And then knowing like the anxiety. Um, and so I think 
they want to instill so much fear in you that you delete the unit, that you decide it's not worth it. And for some teachers, I'm sure they do that. And I don't blame them, right? In my own sometimes kind of communities and activist communities, people are like, you know, I have my unit up there, like, mm, it's all right. And I could see where they think that because it's like, you're trying so hard to um, put in all these various things. It's like you don't sleep. Um, it probably, if it wasn't for some of my close colleagues coming in, like when administrators came in to be like, you know what, I'm going to be there too because I want to make sure I witness and take notes. Right. I have a colleague who I respect very much, um, has taught social studies for a long time. And so when he taught his unit, he's like, oh, I, you know, why don't you come in? I'd be interested in getting your feedback. And so he had kids reading like kind of a document about pre like the conflict. And I was like, oh, what's your source? Because if you look at all mine, I make sure this goes into kind of the third question, but make sure to really source the documents. And he's like, oh, I wrote it. I'm like, you wrote what you gave them to read? And all I could think is like, dang, if I wrote my own and put myself as a source, I can't even imagine um, the daggers. So I think, you know, just thinking about like the way they bring your personal and who you are. So then this really was more about who I am as a person rather than what I was teaching. Um, because like I said, I had two years, you know, with my students to really kind of develop, um, you know, trust and kind of our idea of you thinking like a historian, right? And if you have other documents or experiences or things you want to bring in, bring it in, right? We're trying to get you to think about, think like a historian. Um, and I see it right in the, just these comments and people, you know, small, she this, she that, and the reference to like a 2010 workshop I did that had the pattern including Palestine in curriculum, because that's what I was asked to do. How can you insert Palestine? Like, where are places you're allowed to insert it? So, yeah, here's the framework. Here's where I insert it. Here's what I do. Um, and here's how I teach it alongside, um, you know, my other curriculum. So I think those are the pieces that you really have to think about is, like, why wasn't at that time, why didn't my district decide, you know what, everyone that teaches it, let's see what you're doing. Why isn't the social science council of, you know, our district allowed to be like, okay, we vetted this, we think it's good. Um, why didn't they ask, right, in that same school? Is there anyone else, you know, teaching? What are they using? And so then you start to know that it's really more about you kind of than what you're doing. But I um, also kind of like Jan mentioned in the comments in my documents um, and what I submitted, there were a lot of like, oh, cross out this word and you should use this word. Well, I can't cross it out because it's not my words or my source. I also saw somebody say, oh, well, her primary source documents were edited down. Yep. Um, most of them are because I'm teaching freshmen or well, sophomores at that point, not all of them with great reading skills. So if you actually go through the curriculum, a lot of times there's a version, two versions, one that I used, um, for some of my students and a fuller version that I use for kind of more advanced readers. Every teacher does that. That's not something um, that is particular to me because you want to make a text accessible for all students, especially um, when they're only in 10th grade. So I think, you know, I'm not, um, like I kind of mentioned before, an anomaly. This is a very well funded, well organized, um, to me kind of, you know, machine. And I think about, you know, the California Ethnic Studies curriculum, which has many references to anti-Semitism. 
Um, and it, I saw that in the chat too, like if there was those references, everything would be okay. No, because the pieces that people are not okay with are very particular, especially like in um, the sections around Arab Americans are very particular to things that are affiliated with Palestine. Um, and what should be included and not, you know, and what should not be included. And they flooded, right? Media, legislatures. Um, and then, like I said, you know, coming after me as like, this is why this happened, even though once again, we're 18 people and all 18 people are kind of discussing and agreeing and deciding and nobody, you can listen to the public recordings of it because, and to see if I was even the one that put the thing in or not put the thing in or who suggested it, um, but they don't do that. So I think, you know, really thinking about like how they try to pin people personally and professionally um, and tie those and they kind of do it to wear you down, wear you down till you're like, you know what, I don't want to do it. I don't want to deal with it. And so, or I'm not going to do the extra work. Let me just use the book and what the book says, because then I could just say, here's what the book says. Yeah, and you'd think that they would see the value in um, in you having your input being that you are Palestinian and not the opposite, you know what I mean? But there's a threat because, God forbid, you know, I always say that the, they treat the narrative like it's the Holy Grail. They will kill and die for it um, or ruin people's lives for it. Um, whereas, in fact, your perspective as as someone who's who has a uh, history and, and and firsthand knowledge should be welcome i see there's in the uh, in the chat there's a comment here um from katherine hughes as uh, it's Freitich, um and she's talking about her son alerted her to the fact that his teacher was using the mcgraw hill and it did not even mention that east jerusalem was occupied it only kind of had a blanket statement that jerusalem is the capital of israel um, and then she approached the, uh, and, and the father is a Palestinian. Um, so she approached the teacher and they wrote a letter and so forth. But um, again, it's the narrative, you know, there's Jerusalem is, if, if, we, if we start taking Jerusalem as an example and we start breaking it down, then the only conclusion is that Jerusalem has been an Arab Muslim city for 1500 years. And then in 1948, half of it was subjected to ethnic cleansing a full and complete ethnic cleansing. In other words, not a single Palestinian individual or family were allowed to remain. That was the Western part of Jerusalem. And then 1967, the second half was occupied, colonized, and now there's a process of ethnic cleansing of that part of Jerusalem. If we we're going to look at a, his, a historical view of Jerusalem, that's what we have. But of course, you can't say that. You know, they go back to referencing, you know, King David gave, you know, conquered Jerusalem for the Jews. And since then, it's been the capital of the Jews. And that's really all that matters. So it's really, there's no history uh, at all that's being offered here, because the history contradicts the narrative. And somehow, they've got this grip, and they're, and they're just holding on really tight. And, you know, Samia, the stories that you're telling are hair-raising. I mean, certainly, because I, perhaps even more so, because it's a personal, you know, it's a personal experience of, of a teacher. Um, and somebody who's, who's contributing, you know, to, to the kids day to day, you know, life. And so that's, it's just really quite, uh, really disturbing. So Zoha, go ahead, please. Yeah. So I thank you so much for sharing your experience, Samia, because especially as you explained the, the trauma that is involved in actually going back and revisiting those stories, I, 
Um, I was going to talk a bit about, you know, the, the way people get targeted individually. And I had noticed when I was looking at some of the stories that we can share um, that, that we've encountered in recent years, um, that, you know, in many of those cases, the people who are being targeted are Jewish teachers, because, you know, these Jewish teachers often felt more comfortable raising the issue of Palestine. They felt, you know, they had a bit of protection against being accused of being anti-Semitic because they themselves are Jewish. And, and oftentimes, I think, um, with teachers of color, and especially Palestinians, it's, it can be hard to, to address this issue that is so personal to you because you face such virulent attacks and such racist attacks. And I, and I think it's just, you probably have gotten a much greater level than, than some of the stories that I even wanted to talk about. But um, one thing that I've seen that I think is really interesting here, we're talking about public schools, um, is that there are, you know, a greater level of protections um, for people at public schools because the First Amendment is applicable there. Um, and we've seen a lot of uh, teachers getting targeted at, at private at private um, high schools um, because there is a, a lower level of protection. And there's these two stories that I wanted to share that I hope Michael can um, add to the chat at, at schools in New York, um, Riverdale and Fieldston, where um, history teachers were ousted for, you know, teaching or tweeting or having messages up uh, near their offices about Palestine. Um, and, and, you know, it's for their actual uh, class-related work. Um, there are also, uh, sorry, there's, there's this whole system of laws that are trying to target people who are active in uh, engaging with um, the issue of Palestine and are active in boycotts for Palestinian rights. Um, so there have been laws passed in, in 30 states around the country that are targeting boycott, divestment, and sanctions activism in various ways. Um, you know, the technical application of those laws can be pretty limited, but we have seen them uh, impact who is able to actually, like, participate in, in children's schooling um, because, you know, they are in certain situations when they're signing contracts with the state in some states, um, not able to sign that contract if they are engaged in a boycott for Palestinian rights. So one, one story there is a teacher, um, I believe this was in Kansas, um, she was involved in a teacher training course. She's a math teacher who had been uh, trained to become a, a teacher trainer just because she was so effective in her teaching, but she wasn't able to go forward with training other teachers. And this wasn't, you know, she wasn't going to be talking about Palestine or about BDS, but just getting blocked out of that process because in order to be a teacher trainer, to sign that contract to be a teacher trainer, she actually would have had to uh, pledge not to boycott Israel for the duration of that contract. And similarly, um, at a school district in Texas, they were not able to hire a speech pathologist who was the only local speech pathologist who uh, was speaking with, was able to communicate with Arabic speaking students um, because they also wanted to have her sign that pledge. And in both of those cases, the local ACLUs uh, sued the state and the state, you know, backed down from their requirement to the extent that they excluded those individuals from the application of the law. They wanted to still have those laws in place to try to scare away uh, people who support Palestinian rights from engaging in contracts with, with states. And, you know, that also is keeping them out of our schools in, in some situations. Um, and so, you know, that is, you know, there are a, a variety of ways that activists and scholars who are engaged in Palestine are getting personally targeted. Um, and there's also, you know, the, the curriculum level targeting that, that Samia and uh, Janine have also spoken about. Um, so one case that I wanted to share about was in Los Angeles. Um, and so there, there was a volunteer group of teachers who had put on this teacher training course 
that is really similar to what Janine was sharing about the, the teacher training courses they had about Israel. But in this case, you know, they weren't paying people to attend the course. They were actually charging people to attend the course, but it was available to people in the district who wanted to become familiar with um, Muslim culture and also the Arab world. Um, and it was like, I think the only uh, teacher training course that was available to teachers in the, the Los Angeles Unified School District that, is, that addressed that particular segment of the population. Um, it had been offered, I think, since 2005, and it actually has just gotten repeatedly targeted by pro-Israel groups because it is providing, you know, some pro-Palestinian perspective or even a balanced perspective to even like talk about Palestine is something that invokes a great deal of ire. Um, you know, uh, for a while, the, the teacher training course was sponsored by the American Friends Service Committee, a group of Quakers that um, often gets targeted um, by these pro-Israel groups because they are coming at you know, the issue of Palestinian rights from this, um, you know, this uh, religiously grounded perspective of wanting to um, try to find peace and recognizing that peace can only come by ensuring equality. And so, you know, because the Quakers are involved in that work, the, this, this teacher training course was getting targeted. Um, and now it's um, being sponsored by a group called the Fellowship of Reconciliation, which similarly has recognized that they don't want to be complicit in Israel's violations of Palestinian rights. And so they support boycott, divestment, and sanctions to avoid having that economic complicity. Um, and so, you know, those are the reasons why this course is getting targeted. And the school district, again, you know, is taking these attacks very seriously. And so they sent, like in Samia's classroom, they sent a monitor to, to monitor the teacher training. And they found that the teacher training was, you know, according to the approved curriculum, and it had not violated any school policies. Uh, they had treated everyone with respect and allowed people to share their diverse perspectives respectfully. And, you know, there was nothing wrong with the course. But um, the next time they went to go get the course renewed and approved for, you know, teacher training credits, um, the school district unilaterally decided that this was too dangerous for uh, district employees to attend and that they could only offer this course online. Um, which was really impossible for the people who were arranging the course because this was an immersive like multicultural experience. They had like Middle Eastern food, they had musical instruments for people to interact with, and they were just expected to take this into like this online format that everyone now realizes in the middle of coronavirus is just really impossible to to translate that classroom level experience um, to to something that is offered online. And that was, you know, entirely because of these racist and Islamophobic tropes that, you know, people who are Middle Eastern or who are taught teaching about the Middle East are somehow dangerous. Um, and so, you know, the, the course actually hasn't been um, offered in a couple of years because they no longer have that approval because they can't offer it in the format that it was like, you know, carefully and unilaterally approved by the committee. Um, so we're, we're hoping to intervene in this case. And I wanted to encourage people to follow us on social media so that they can get involved. Um, in pushing back on that censorship and getting the school district to reinstate that course once people are able to um, offer courses in person. And just really quickly, I want to talk about a different level of targeting that is also taking place, which is at the legislative level. Um, so at both the state and federal level, um, there is this effort to, and I've seen this discussed in the chat, this effort to redefine the concept of anti-Semitism to encompass most um, forms of criticism of Israel. So if you are criticizing Israel, but you're not criticizing some other country, if you're not criticizing Mexico, then, you know, you can be accused of being anti-Semitic because you are targeting Israel. Um, and so one of, and in like the state of Florida, that's been adopted to apply to um, K through 20 schools and for investigations into potential civil rights violations. And so in, in this way that Samia is getting attacked and, and people are saying that she has a Palestinian flag, like, 
if this were happening in Florida, they might be invoking this new anti-Semitism definition to try to say that, you know, recognizing that Palestinians exist somehow is hurtful to Jewish students, which, you know, is, is not the case. We see so many Jews, I mean, Nico, um, right here in this, this conversation who recognize and value Palestinian rights. And so this effort to, to equate any criticism of Israel with targeting Jews is, you know, it's really not a false equation. Um, and one interesting perspective that I saw on this was from a professor of Jewish studies at Wake Forest University, his name is Barry Trachtenberg, and, and talking about the Anti-Semitism Awareness Act, which is a piece of legislation that was introduced at the federal level for this definition and that has not passed Congress. Um, what he said was, since they're losing the battle of student opinion, the battle over student opinion on a level, on a fair playing field of public debate in college campuses, supporters of the Anti-Semitism Awareness Act are trying to demolish the entire field and stop any debate from occurring at all. So, you know, just by, by redefining terms, they're creating the situation where you can't even talk about Palestine because that is portrayed as being hurtful to Jewish students. And so no one is actually able to learn the background information that they need to, to challenge this narrative on Israel that has been pushed at so many various levels. Thanks for that, uh, Zoha. You know, it's interesting, this, idea, this, this notion that somehow talking about Palestinian issues or raising the issue of Palestine, it comes up a lot. It comes up on college campuses. I'm sure you've heard this before. It comes up, you know, that's kind of an excuse. Um, my friend, Esty Chandler, uh, posted here in the chat, um, you know, education isn't therapy. <laughs> History isn't meant to enforce mythology. History is meant to teach them something, you know, perhaps outside of their own little box. Uh, I think it's a good comment. I think that it's, you know, we, we, too often we, we, we treat this as, as, you know, we try to walk like we're walking on eggshells around, around this issue. And um, what about the Palestinians who are offended all the time by referencing references to Palestinian terrorism, references to Palestinian children being taught to hate and all of this, all of these, all of these claims that we know are false. I mean, we know evidentially, we know factually that they are false. Um, but nobody bothers to think, you know, what are these Palestinian American children are are feeling or thinking? I remember a mother came up to me, uh, a friend from um, I forget what city it was. It was in Texas, either Houston or or um, or Dallas, and the school just received their tolerance certificate from guess who the ADL the anti-defamation league the uh, an organization that that spends all its energy on defamation of Arabs and Muslims but still call themselves an anti-defamation league um, but in that course that the school or the teachers had to go through in this in this process um, it was uh, you know it was mentioned that Palestinians are terrorism and you know negating all the, the entire Palestinian narrative and her her own child who's Palestinian and goes to Palestinian American and goes to the school is like, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to think about this? And what about these kids' feelings and thoughts? Not to mention the fact that it is not true that, you know, all, all these claims that are made about Palestinians are not true. And um, so I, that, that, was the, that, that was very useful. You know, I think uh, Esty's comment here that education is not therapy, although yes, of course we have to, you know, take care not to hurt students' feelings, but at a certain point, history is history. Um, I mean, one, uh, let's see, a third question. We're approaching the kind of towards the end here. How do we challenge uh, 
what we're seeing here, this intervention, this, uh, these attempts to influence social studies and what is happening with these attacks, I should say, on the social studies curriculum, and how do we move forward so that an honest and fair uh, curriculum is available to students? Um, so uh, let's go back to you, Jean, and um, please go ahead. Well, once we realized, uh, once we saw all these edits, we, well, what, what do you do? You know, I mean, we're so shocked that this uh, California group is telling Virginia what to do with its textbooks. I mean, we were shocked. Uh, so then, uh, you know, after you catch your second breath, then you, uh, well, you know, write letters, right? You write letters to officials, uh, all state officials, uh, government officials, Virginia legislators. Well, with the letter, we said, well, we need proof. We need, so we, we did a fact sheet. Remember the edits I showed you before? We put them in a matrix and a chart. And... Um, And we made this fact sheet. Now I'm not going to read all of it, but I do want you to see what we, how we had to manage our information. And it was very good we did this because the scholars that we got to support us in signing these letters could take a quick look at this fact sheet. The left uh, column are the themes of the edits that I went over. The middle column is exactly what ICS wants. And then the right column is um, our response to it. And I'm just gonna go over a few of these because that did help the scholars realize that this is really very serious. Um, as I said before, if you look at the first theme, we ICS referenced Palestine only as mandatory Palestine, not as a state or a territory. And if you look at the middle column, they wanted you to substitute Israel and Palestine to Israel and the Palestinians and their reasoning, quote, there is no state of Palestine, nor has there ever been one. And so on the right, you'll see that we have said that over 70% of 136 member states of the UN have recognized the state of Palestine. If you go down to the second one, the ICS edits always said it was the Arab fault, not only for making fights for crisis initiation, but for the failure of the peace talks and for peace efforts. And so if you go to the middle, you'll see that they said, you've got to add the text. These wars were the result of Arab hostilities. In these wars, Israel fought back for its existence and in turning back Arab forces captured more territory using the word captured there, of course, not occupied. And then the third one we've already talked about, and the fourth one is interesting. They equate the plight of the Palestinian refugees with Jewish refugees from Arab lands after 48. Um, and they, uh, they asked the publisher to put in the question, what was it like for Palestinian Arabs and Jews from Arab lands to have to leave their homes. So equating the plight and the despair and the suffering of both. And the last one, uh, this is the second page. Um, I think this is what uh, Miko was talking about. 
if you go down to the second one, adding content that supports Israeli claims, change the maps. Just, just, just change the maps. Indicate that the Golan Heights belongs to Israel rather than to Syria. Why? Because Israel captured the Golan Heights in 67. So then in the right-hand column, we always cite United Nations resolutions when it says that that is null and void. And the thing that really bothers me the most is ICS discourages unguided internet research. They say that students should only use approved websites like the ADL website and the Jewish virtual library because who knows what they're gonna come up with. Controversial content, material that is inappropriate for the classroom. So this got our academics exercised and uh, helped us assemble a wonderful review committee um, who uh, added credence to our concerns. I'm just going to point out three of them. You see at the end, Colonel Larry Wilkerson, who is chief of staff to Colin Powell, William B. Quant, who is the head of National Security Council for President Carter, and Peter Mandeville on the top right, who was a senior policy advisor for Secretary Clinton. So, you know, these are, these are heavyweights, really. All academicians in Virginia. Um, and so we, these people supported us all the way through in our letters, signed all of our letters. These are the textbooks that we looked at and reviewed. And um, one was by Pearson, one by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, and one by McGraw-Hill. ICS proposed edits for these textbooks, and we believe that VCHR has stopped these edits. The department actually called the publishers and um, asked them whether they had received the edits. And, um, so we believe that after all of this hard work, we have won at the battle, maybe not the war, but we've won this particular battle. And we have been alerted to this and every seven years this comes up. And so we'll be prepared next, next time it comes up. I have other things, other ways that we push back with our testimonies and our lobbying but uh, because time is a little bit short, I'll let the other panelists uh, have their turn. Thank you. Thank you, Jean. And you guys did all this without the million dollars. All volunteer outfit. Incredible. It's, I mean, it's incredible work. This is so thorough. Uh, it's fantastic. I, 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 this, is, this is really outstanding. We're very uh, proud of it. We're very proud of what we have done. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, so, uh, go ahead, uh, Samia, you're next. Okay, so, um, I just wanted that, and, uh, Jan mentioned a piece around the unguided, like, internet research, so that's something that was mentioned as a critique in my final project for kids, um, we're going to represent these countries and having a, you know, a Socratic kind of discussion around what steps can be taken to make headway in the conflict. But um, what I wanted to talk about or kind of appeal to are what teachers specifically can do, because I feel like 
um, best positioned um, in that. And I think all teachers watching um, or people in public education know that relationships are at the core um, of our work. And so um, something that kind of ties in what Zoha was talking about is, and that came up earlier about the Palestinian flag. So that happened to be in my colleague's classroom and his among, like I said, lots of other flags and things. Um, he was also a social science teacher for English learner students. And so he had a student that there was a teacher using his classroom for um, Spanish. And one of the students in that Spanish class is the one who complained that he felt uncomfortable with the Palestinian flag being there, made him feel unsafe. And that's why he had to have that taken down, a little sticker on his kind of podium and other things that made that kid so uncomfortable. That same kid um, at my school, we kind of do these senior defense projects and a teacher that was in charge of assigning them, they all have mentors felt like that kid could benefit from um, me being his mentor. Thank you. So um, fine, I actually had just met that family because I coached that student's um, sister in soccer. Um, and so kind of knew the family from there. Long story short, um, in our first, you know, the students have to email and set up an appointment. And it was like, hi, um, you know, I know you think I'm going to do something on Palestine, Israel. Um, and maybe that's why we were matched. Oh, you expect me to do this. But I'm actually doing something about the pharmaceutical industry and whatever it was. So I messaged him back and I'm like, um, you know, hi ex-student. Uh, glad to meet you and happy to be your mentor and whatever subject you choose. I actually didn't have the expectation because I've never actually met you um, in person or face-to-face. -face. So like whatever you decide to do, I'll do my best. Anyway, that um, we got along great phenomenally. I think, you know, that student who may have whatever had those perspectives also had some preconceived notions about who I was um and what i expected or didn't and so we did this paper on you know the pharmaceutical industry and got along great and talked about all kinds of other things i have a great relationship with the family i always laugh because um soccer season's over the winter break and around christmas they always gave me a gift and like here's a jewish family giving a muslim you know coach a gift for christmas uh and so we'd have you know a good laugh and so i wanted to talk about relationships first because I think that kid, yeah, whatever their comfort, that, you know, hopefully I think that's a separate issue with a different teacher, but then put that on me because of who I am without knowing me um, and thought I might have these expectations. So it's, I think it's about relationships and having confidence in your work. I could have, and I thought about it many times, like folding, like I'm tired, the emotional energy that this takes to persevere through. And I know lots of teachers know that. Um, I think knowing what you're putting out is accurate, right? Like you're sourcing every document you give kids um, and that it is a reputable source. We teach kids for, you know, thinking like historian for two years. It's, that's the first thing you do is look at the source. Who's writing this? Who's telling the story? What is the narrative about? Is the narrative complete? Is there even a such thing as a complete narrative, right? I kind of run, people always talk about like the truth. Well, for me, I, have developed my unit around these four ideas that there are facts that are indisputable and then people read those facts and then they have their own personal perspective that are influenced by their kind of life experiences and then from that is spun a narrative and that narrative then becomes what people say is the truth but is the truth the same thing as a fact and that's something we kind of argue throughout the unit or is it something that people come to to hold personally um to them once they've kind of 
And I think that's what happens with all these different um, kind of companies and organizations is they create these truths that may be based on fact, but they've also been layered with their perspective and their story. And then they come out like this and it gets put on a website or a document or whatever it is. And people take that um, to exist. So I think I mentioned early on and I'll mention it again, the Teach Palestine project, because I think there's a lot of really great resources there um, for teachers. And I think kind of the best thing we can do is keep pace with the narratives, right? We see that in solidarity movements. Um, you think about common experiences. And I think recently with all of the stuff, uh, the kind of George Floyd, I will say ignited activism, because I think it was always there, but I think we got to a boiling point. You see his face on walls painted in Palestine, painted in Syria, and people seeing connections. It's like if if you were against state-sanctioned violence here, you have to be against state-sanctioned violence in you know Palestine. It's the same. So I think drawing parallels um, and experiences. And I think I saw in the link somebody talked about um, kind of themes and thematically. Like I taught thematically, I think that works really well. But the connections extend um, far beyond just kind of the you know this. Uh, violence against black and brown communities. I think there's lots of things. Um, we have to remember Arabs were part of the third world liberation struggle in this um, country. And then lastly, I think building confidence in our kids. Someone had um, told the story in the chat about how they went to the teacher um, and kind of challenged what was in the book. I grew up in an era, it didn't matter what our textbook said, like my parents were not going to go to school and complain. That's just something Arabs, we don't do that. Don't complain, school is right, whatever they say. And you know what, I'll educate you at home. Um, I've taken my own kids, they're nine, they've traveled to Palestine and Israel five times. And I think, you know, really allowing them to kind of have the confidence to fully develop arguments, articulate um, what that means in the educational setting. Like I was too scared. I'm like, you know what, I shouldn't, I don't wanna deal with it. And I went to really diverse school, but I think thinking about, um, I had all the friends that love to come to my house and eat our food. Right, but I never use that as an opportunity. Like, where are we gonna do a group project? Your house, what did your mom make? But I never use that as an opportunity to share my Palestinianness. I just wanted to, I kind of was in high school during the time of the first goal four, and I was like, ooh, everything on the media was like bad. And I'm like, I'm not them, right? I'm this person that I was kind of weaving myself um, to be. So I'm really trying to raise my kids with confidence, but with words too. Um, my daughter's name is Palestine, and you know she. Uh, my son's name is Jihad. They're twins, um, and I want their teachers and their classmates to see them as fully human beings versus kind of racialized, right? That reflects um, kind of the media stereotypes. And I hope that that when they see them as kind of full human beings, and my kids feel that because I'm going to teach them that way um that they'll be open to hearing right other people will be open to hearing their stories because i i really think it's like as organized like can we get as organized in the millions and that i mean uh, i'm not trying to be pessimist but i think it's really hard and so then i really believe in the power of relationships the power of education the power of classrooms um and you know kind of the last thing i'll say is i remember 
kind of my administrator saying, well, I don't know, you know, these people, they might go um, to the board. If they go to the board, I'm like, please, for the love of God, tell them to go to our board because that's where I'm going to have my family, thousands of them lined up that I have taught that love and respect me to kind of help plead my case. And parents would say it too, because kids started to notice there's an admin in here every day, right? Um, some of my own students would be like, so-and-so, like, is Miss Showman in trouble? Why are you here? Why are you here? And like, they don't want to talk about it or defend it. So I think you know, building the relationships, knowing, um, you know, that your work and your reputation will stand for itself, regardless of what people put about you online. Um, and that took me a long time to get over because I'd be like, oh my God, they're being so mean. You know, even here, I'm like looking at it, I'm like, oh. Um, but just really being confident and knowing like you're doing good work, source your work, and now it's like, um, put the narrative out there. Brilliant, Samia. Thank you so much. Those are fantastic experiences and just, just, just great insight. Thank you so much. Uh, Zoha, you want to wrap it up? Go ahead. Yeah. So, I mean, I, those were all such amazing and warm stories to tell. I feel like I, I'm speaking at such a distant level here. Um, but I think just uh, to think about like the structural issues that allow uh, teachers and curriculums to be attacked. Um, so when I was talking earlier about the individual teachers that were getting ousted from their schools because of their views, um, these teachers were at at private independent schools, and you know it's very important for us to have a well-funded and robust public school system, and for us to be aware of efforts to undermine that. Um, because if if we have this robust system, that is something that is bound by our First Amendment guarantees, and it's something that we as a community have a say over. Um, and it's also very important for us to ensure that with this, these robust school systems, there's also, you know, robust and accountable unions that are representing uh, teachers against, you know, the, the, the higher corporate level pushback that they might be getting from uh, some of the school boards. Um, and, you know, they're the, the frontline defense in a lot of these situations where teachers are getting targeted because of their personal views. Um, and then just, you know, providing more support to teachers, um, you know, for us to uh, show up as a community to uh, the, the school district meetings, um, to talk to the school board and to share those perspectives and not just leave it to people like Samia and her family to do that. It's very important for parents to remain engaged. So, you know, it's very important. And we ask people often to uh, sign on to action alerts and to uh, send letters and emails, but it, you know, personally showing up, especially as the parent of a student is really impactful. And so just remaining engaged in your, in your um, community and uh, playing that role. But of course, also send emails, call people. It really does have a, a big impact and it causes people to change their minds to actually hear that perspective. Because sometimes, you know, they might be pushing the pro-Israel narrative because they don't realize that there is any other narrative um, that potentially can exist. And so, you know, that the, the and the best way for teachers to be able to uh, teach these classes is to know that they have a robust community that is going to be behind them. Um, and just from to make another plug for Palestine Legal, you know, if you see anyone who um, is facing this kind of suppression, please encourage them to contact us, even if they don't need any help from us, um, for us to share for them to share their stories with us allows us to, you know, uh, have that broader perspective of what's going on nationwide and to share those experiences and make connections with other people that might be facing those same attacks. Like, I just I feel like I'm going to send so many people to talk to you, Samia, because I think that you can provide so much uh, guidance in, in how to uh, engage with these these types of attacks. Um, and so, you know, just contact Palestine Legal. Um, I think contact information was in the chat earlier. Brilliant. Thank you, Zoha. And, um, you know, I see 
I, I see a lot of young Palestinians, here, I'm talking about here in the United States and in other countries, but mainly here in the United States at conferences. Um, you see young, you know, a lot of the, the, the Palestine related conferences, people bring their families, you see little kids uh, on, on college campuses, the activists, the organizers of events and so on. Um, and um, seeing the way they were raised and the way they are, their ability to stand up, their ability to um, engage in a polite and respectful way and get their point across and stand up for Palestine very, very clearly and engage in all the activism. In light of everything that we talked about today or the last hour and a half is, is really nothing short of miraculous. And I think that is a reflection on the work that each one of the each one of you three has been doing on your own in your own world in your own realm in your own work i mean it's really i believe that that is a reflection of that i'll never forget being at a conference in chicago and all these little palestinian kids are running around and they're palestinian americans and we were asking them where they're from and they're all from yaffa or haifa or or akka or gaza you know what i mean they're, they're five years old they probably couldn't even they've never seen a map but they know exactly what village, which town, which, you know, my mother's from here, but my father's from there. Um, so there's a lot of things that are being done right, because otherwise we wouldn't, have, we wouldn't have seen that. And again, being in so many colleges and universities and seeing the Palestinian activists, and of course, they're not only Palestinian activists, there are others, but I'm talking about the Palestinian ones because it's their identity uh, that's being put to question by the biggest authorities, by the schools, by the churches, by the government, and so on, and yet they know exactly who they are, they know where they're from, they know where they're going, and really they're, they're, they're able to do it in such a, a, a uh, methodical, that, it, that again, like I said, I think it's a reflection of, of, the, of, of what you, you three are, are doing in your own realm, because that is, precisely, um, that is precisely the result of this work, and that's what we'd like to see, we'd like to see more of it. And we'd also like to see the curriculum be a, a good curriculum. In other words, that the kids are really learning history, that they're really understanding what happened in Palestine, what happened to Palestine. Then they can make their own decisions and, and, and figure out if they think it's right, if they think it's wrong, and so forth. So I think it's time to open up for questions. Um, I think we are going to have quite a few questions. So Jamil, if you want to jump back in, and manage that and read us some of the questions, uh, that'd be great. Sure thing. So yes, we did receive a ton of questions. So we'll try and get through these uh, as best we can. So there were two questions actually um, on the same topic. So I'm gonna combine them. These, the topic is about teacher unions. And these questions came from uh, uh, Saleha and Mary. So I'm gonna read both questions. Um, I think they're covering the same topic essentially. So. What about the teachers unions in the US? What is their stance in this matter? Are they supportive of teachers such as Samia? And the second question about unions is, have, have all teacher unions been supportive? Which unions weighed in for teachers under attack? The AFT president is closely tied to the Israeli Histardrut His unions, and there have been reluctance to take on Palestine and Palestinian human rights or political rights under occupation. I wanted to know if AFT or NEA were supportive to teachers. President Weingarten has, lo has long had a history of close affiliation with Israeli labor unions. I am a member of AFT, and this is something about which she is not willing to have the union engage on. 
Who wants to jump in? I mean, uh, Samia, seems like you're the, na the, the, the natural, uh, go ahead. Yeah. So when all of this was happening, um, I, you know, was lucky my classroom shared a door with the person who's our like building kind of union rep. So I'd be like, okay, I need you to come to the, you know, I'm in trouble, principal's office, let's go. To so he sat with me um, in probably over the course of the year, 10 different meetings, right? Where requests for curriculum, all those pieces. And so I would always say, um, you know, should I get a lawyer? Like, is the union gonna back me? Even though I know my job isn't in jeopardy, you still feel like you're in jeopardy. I'm a tenure teacher um, with good evaluations and reputation. Um, and a lot of the communication for my district was coming through my principals, except for the one time, um, he's no longer with our district, our superintendent of curriculum instruction at that time um, came to speak with me. But they ended up saying, you know what? We're going to connect you um, with a lawyer through the ACLU. And I went and visited um, that lawyer, kind of told her my story. Um, and she was very good about, you know, kind of there's nothing yet we can do because your job isn't in jeopardy. Um, but what I'm going to do is send a letter saying that it does seem like the harassment is based on um, who you are as a person versus your actual curriculum because there are not students tied. Um, to it. And I think, you know, as a teacher, that's one thing I had to keep reminding myself that this is right. Um, the JCRC with the different organizations behind them making these complaints and asking for the curriculum. It wasn't a student in my actual class. And I think, you know, that goes back to the first question around the evidence. Like if a student in my class felt uncomfortable, regardless of where they were from, um, I think that would probably break me because I would never want a to a student to feel that way. Um, and so I would say the teachers union was helpful in a sense of trying to be there and help connect me and making sure that like my rights within my building were met, like accompanying me to meetings and making sure that the admin was following the rules and that any notes they took or anything that they sent to the district I had access to. And so when they would type up their narratives or whatever the observations, they would make sure that I had those. Um, are you the union president of the CTA happened to be on our campus and so he was well aware and they kind of did a lot of checking um, because it never really went anywhere in terms of them making requests of me changing any of the curriculum and there was no like there's no disciplinary measure since it didn't involve actual kids or families from our school um, then I, I, you know, I feel very lucky for that so I think that's kind of what my teacher's union role. Um, protecting teachers um, because they have those mechanisms in place and those uh, legal support services that they're able to engage. Um, and so I think it's very important for us to, you know, encourage uh, this concept in other realms as well, but um, not to discount the possibility of the union intervening. I know um, with the Los Angeles Unified School District, they were interested in protecting the teacher training course that I was talking about, even though there were some people in various districts of the union that were um, very pro-Israel and we're trying to call for the teacher training course to get canceled. The actual um, leadership within the union was very supportive. 
Um, and so, you know, I, I think it can vary, but I think it's still a very important structure and that, you know, engaging, if you are a teacher, engaging in those mechanisms can be really helpful. And there's a story that this actually reminded me of, um, you know, the, the issue with the Palestinian flag in your, your colleague's classroom, uh, there was a teacher um, in like a central California school district that had had a sign on his wall that said parking for Israelis only. And there was a substitute teacher that came into his classroom and had seen that sign and, you know, being aware of the segregation that is in place in Israel and the different treatment of Israelis and Palestinians uh, found that very offensive, especially given that there were Palestinian students in that school district and had just left a small note on the teacher's desk saying, um, like, Israel is like a like genocidal state and free Palestine, just like to like draw attention to that issue. And he was really summarily fired from that school district. And because he was a substitute teacher and because within that school district, um, substitute teachers um, were not um, part of the union, I think, you know, it was a lot harder for him to uh, push back on that firing that was just really inappropriate because he had just left a private note for a teacher. It wasn't something that was disruptive and it wasn't something that interfered with anyone's education. And he was drawing attention to like the, the discriminatory impact of this sign that was on the wall. I would just I would just jump in really quick and, you know, um, agree with Zoha around the power that a teacher's union can have. And I do think that there's different cases in different levels, because I'd imagine if there was disciplinary action, like a firing of a teacher based on something, then it might come into play way more. In my case, I was lucky that that wasn't the case. And I think that's why it wasn't. But I really appreciated the fact that they were willing to connect me to this lawyer who sent letters to my district. And I think that really caught their attention in terms of like, oh, we actually do have to be careful when we're trying to outsource or say these things or do these things because like they're paying attention and they're gonna make sure, right? Um, you know, teachers' rights are protected, so. All right, you ready for next question? Yeah. Okay, this one is from Jesse. The question is how prevalent is the teaching of the myth that the two-state solution is still possible. Is that even taught anywhere? Does anybody know? I think it's, I've seen it in other teachers' curriculum um, as different projects where it's like, you know, how can a two-state solution work? And they give kids a blank map and ask them to, you know, cut it apart. Um, so yes, I, I don't know how prevalent, but I do think that it's, still exists. I know and when I taught um, I presented kind of a history of what various solutions were and then asked kids like okay good luck see what you can come up with within the reality of kind of what's happening um, and I know it is in some books. Anybody? Okay. Yeah, I've never seen it in my you know like I said I the only I followed my kids, you know, textbooks and, and, and history and, and stuff like that. I've never seen it come up. I don't remember it coming up. Okay, uh, next question is from uh, Razan. Uh, Texas public schools curriculum, which is also distributed in neighboring states, is controlled by the Texas Education Agency. TEA is directed by elected officials. Does, do any of the panelists know of any connections between these elected officials and the pro-Israeli groups such as JCRC? Anybody want to jump in? Anybody? 
That'll be next week. Next week, you'll have the, the Texas Coalition for Human Rights. Somebody from Texas Coalition next week, so tune in. Part two, next uh, Wednesday, July 1st, same time. All right. Uh, is there a list? Uh, I'm sorry, this question comes from Faye. Is there a list of unbiased textbooks that your committee recommends? And th this was actually addressed to Gene specifically. Oh, boy. Let's see. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Good call. This has got some great books in here. Is that Faye Stump in West Virginia? Is, is that who she is? Faye, you got to read this book. He's got some wonderful suggestions of some very, very good books. Well, somebody, somebody was asking, somebody in the chat is asking, uh, would it be possible to disseminate uh, excerpts from Nur Masalha's Palestine of 4,000 Year History uh, in public schools? Um, maybe one of you can talk a little bit about the, just the process of getting information, getting books approved, getting them into the classroom. Uh, Sammy, you want to, anything yeah. you can tell us about that? So I can, I mean, I'll talk to you in California, you know, teachers have the discretion um, to supplement, right, curriculum. We don't, some, it's kind of district by district, and I feel like schools by schools in terms of like adopted curriculum. Um, but I think when it comes to units of study, teachers are free to build their own units of study. So if when you look at my curriculum, it is a compilation of all kinds of excerpts from various texts and reading because our textbook has like two pages. Um, and that's just not enough to cover this long history that's pre-48 to now. And so I do think you could take excerpts, right? And again, you just source it. You give the context of why you're using it. Um, and, you know, be prepared to why, you know, what is the purpose of using it? What are kids going to learn from it? And then what are you putting kind of alongside it? So I do think, you know, teachers have a lot of discretion around what they are bringing into their classroom. And can you imagine somebody, I don't know if you're familiar with the book. I read it recently and I know, I know Nurma uh, Salha as well, but can you imagine a teacher getting away with using that as a source? Depends who the teacher is, you know, and I'll be honest, because like, I, I think it depends on who they are and what they look like and who's in their classroom. Like they could, um, I've seen lots of teachers get away with like, you know, even using things, whatever, very like dinosaurs. I was like, dang, you use that in your classroom? Okay, no judgment, right? It's not for me to judge. Like you're teaching what you um, kind of teach. Uh, so I, I think context matters, right? Um, where are you teaching? You know, do, are you going to have a supportive, like you have to think about those things. Is your administration going to support you? What is the context? Are you only using that? What are you putting? What are various things you're putting alongside it? So I think, you know, if you can justify why you chose that versus something else, I would say, why not? Why can't you use that? But uh, I think you have to take into account the context, you know, that you're teaching in and uh, the support of your administration. And I think that goes with not just this, lots of things, teachers that want to teach certain books or literature that are, you know, controversial um, that people don't think uh, should be taught that like we would probably never think are controversial. Well, that would probably be one. Anybody else know anything about that process? Want to add it to, to that? All right, let's go. Okay, this one is from Zaina. 
How can experienced teachers like Samia help newer teachers navigate these political roadblocks and help them be confident in teaching about Palestine and Israel? Also, how can the community support teachers who are experiencing these attacks? Thank you. So um, I think creating networks, right? So we do have the Teach Palestine project that's trying to connect educators, my contact information, and I'm happy to share because I'd love to talk to any teacher kind of that just needs help or a supportive person. But I also think, you know, I'm part of an Arab American teachers network in Chicago um, that was just founded. And I think creating all kinds of various, could be social studies teachers networks um, and finding each other so that we can kind of help and share curriculum. I've always, I mean, one thing I do with my um, curriculum, I think other teachers do it too, is I don't PDF my um, work. I, it's all in Google Documents. You have to make a copy. So if you want to edit it, you can change it and it's your copy. But I remember talking to a teacher on campus before and I was like, oh, I was thinking about trying to maybe publish my curriculum. He looked at me. He's like, um, no, your curriculum needs to be shared. You can be charged. Not that I was going to like, I never thought really about charging people, but I just thought about publishing it. And so he really checked me, which was good. Um, but I think sharing curriculum and sharing, you know, resources. And I think teachers now with like kind of open source and the ability to do that so easily in Google, um, I really, I think we need to do that. And then just meeting each other and knowing, like I've learned so much just being, I'm a panelist from the other two um, panelists on here. So I think really looking for networks, Facebook is a really good place to do that. And then finding each other through things like this, looking, yeah, people's whatever names or other people in the chat saying, oh, I teach and you're happy to, you know, be happy to contact me because I think it's hard. We have the great fortune of uh, living in Northern Virginia. And uh, so we have tremendous resources here uh, with the Georgetown uh, Contemporary Center for Arab Studies. Uh, with the uh, Muslim Christian Understanding, with the National Arab American Women's Association. Uh, they all offer resources and workshops to new teachers. Uh, as Dr. Samia said, there are standalone curriculums on Palestine, the Palestine Information Network, which is a group of churches, the United uh, Council of Churches, has published a bibliography on Palestinian curriculum and also has the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights has a curriculum, Palestine 101, it's not that complicated. Okay, thank you. We have time for one more, maybe two more? Sure, yeah, I think so. Okay, here's a question from Sally for Jean. Is there somewhere online to find a list of textbooks that are not edited according to Zionist slash ICS type organizations or finding out about the bad textbooks that should be avoided. Would you repeat that question, please? Yeah, sure. Uh, is there somewhere online to find a list of textbooks that are not edited according to Zionist slash ICS type organizations or where we can find the bad textbooks that should be avoided? I don't know of a list like that. I do not know that. I know that there have been very good history books that have been recommended um, and they've been recommended in this book here. Um, so I would definitely look at the bibliography in the back of this book. This man recommends some very good books for high school. And I think both parts of your question kind of said the same thing, didn't they? Yeah, pretty much. Mm -hmm. I would just quickly add, I mean, 
I think, you know, people should just really pay attention to the textbooks that are used in their kids' school because I think it's gone, you know, when Juneteenth came by, people were like, oh, I didn't even know about Juneteenth. Well, Juneteenth isn't in any U.S. history textbook. Of course it's not, right? So it's not just about Palestine. It's about many parts of history um, that, you know, are erased and not included. And, you know, or the textbook is already so big and it's a lot of history to cover um, in schools. And so really just kind of being aware and knowing and asking what supplemental materials is this school or is your district using to cover the curriculum besides what's in the textbook. And no matter what state you're in, please go to your state board and ask, when is the review process for your history books? What year is that coming up? In Virginia, it's every seven years. And uh, when you get that, I mean, it is not easy. They don't tell you when it's coming up. You have got to look for it. And you have to be aware. And then you have to figure out when the public commentary period is. And then you have to show up at the board meetings. I mean, this all takes a concerted effort. Um, but I would say that would be the first step. Find out when your history textbook review process uh, find out the dates. Now, some big states have them centralized, like Virginia, California, and Texas. But really, most other states are at the district level. So if you live in, I don't know what, uh, what county, county, Morgan County, uh, West Virginia, you may have to go to Morgan County to find out what that school district has adopted. So you may have to go to the district or the state level. Okay. Do you want? Do we want to tackle one more and then close sure, it out? This one, yeah. Okay. Final question of the evening uh, for our East Coasters is: How is 1948 and Al Nakba broadly framed in history, social studies curriculum? This is an anonymous question. Sammy, have you had a chance to teach that? Does that even come up? Uh, uh, yeah, I do teach it. Um, it's not framed in uh, the textbook, um, honestly, at all. There's no mention of a Nekba or the catastrophe. And so, you know, I kind of mentioned mine is teaching Palestine Israel through multiple narratives. And so I talk about, well, in Israel, right, it was the War of Independence um, and then the creation of their state. And for Palestinians, they saw it as a Nekba and catastrophe. And then we read kind of and look at pictures of stories that represent both. Um, and, you know, that there are these two coexisting truths um, for people and some that are, you know, even more than two, right? Because it's about multiple narratives. There are people that were happy that the state was created and then they come to find um, out about Nekba and the, you know, the catastrophe and, you know, trying to figure out what you're going to do with that. Um, and so definitely I cover it through various kind of sets of documents and addressing it. And I know some other people do, but it's definitely not in any textbook. And I've looked at a lot of textbooks that I've ever seen either of those two words being used or the discussion of displacement of Palestinians and the creation of. Let me, let me, let me push you on that a little bit. Um, so let's say we love Israel and we agree that Israel is the best thing ever created. At the same time, um, you know, close to a million people were displaced, hundreds and hundreds of towns, and like an entire country really was destroyed. I mean, hundreds of cities and towns 
uh, historic monuments going back thousands. I mean, incredible, incredible destruction. Um, is there any way to get that through? Because I mean, it's not about the narrative. This is yeah. about this no. is yes. How do you get that? The narrative, yep. but this is this is actually what took place. So, is is there a way to 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 present that? Yeah. If you look at my curriculum, you know, I talked about the framework I use, which is the fact, perspective, narratives, and truth. And so in that fact section, like, here's the list of destroyed villages. Here's the number of people that were displaced and now live in Jordan and then Lebanon and Syria. And there's a map I kind of use, right, with arrows that give the numbers. And then there's pictures of people on the road. Um, my husband's family were some of those people. They lived in Besan, which borders, you know, it's in Israel and borders Jordan, and they walked from Besan to Jordan. Um, and so we use, I think somebody just said the Alice of Palestine, like those maps and those things in the actual curriculum. Like kids look though, these are the facts that have happened. And then here's the stories and these various quotes and on the same side, right? We look at, you know, pictures of people celebrating independence in the state and the declaration and things Ben Gurion said, and, you know, kids have to look and analyze what does it mean when I'm seeing this. But this is up to you to present as a teacher. That does not That's exist. That's right. Yes. Is no, there, it does not exist in a textbook. So is, is there any teaching of what happened in 1948 in Palestine presented in any textbook? So it's not really part of any... Not program. that I've ever seen. No. Nope. And uh, I'm just thinking of what Jean was showing us earlier where, and I've heard this uh, from others too, where basically the attempt is to show all wars were forced upon Israel, so don't blame Israel. And in 1948, all these Arab countries uh, invaded Israel and in an attempt to destroy the small state that was just established. But the, what we're talking about did not stop, I mean, fine, you know, the, the, the actual, the actual, military confrontation with other Arab armies began in, you know, later in like in May of 1948. But what we're talking about is something that started long before that, the displacement, the destruction and so forth. So talking right. about- Did you see? Nope, that's all supplemental material, right? Which is why teachers have to build their own curriculum and have built their own curriculum. Because again, you go into a textbook, it's like, look how many pages, two, maybe three, um, you know, you still, look, yeah. So I, I think, and you look, so many things are missing. And it, it, that's the same thing. Do you think Daddy Yassin massacre is like in any textbook, you know, as part of um, the creation of Israel? No. They, they uh, Dr. Sam is right. They condense a mountain of material into a few dense paragraphs. So there's no causal. Well, why did the Arabs reject the peace process? They don't give you the reasons why. What about um, 1967? Is there anything about that? Because they obviously are trying to make sure that there's no, the word occupation isn't used, the word settlement isn't used, and that, you know, contrary to what every, every general that I've heard of, including my own father, you know, Israel attacked, but never mind that. Um, Israel initiated the war, but is there any discussion? Is there any is it being taught? Because how could that be taught without having 1948 taught? You know what I mean? One, one comes after the other. So is that taught at all? Anywhere? I mean, it's in the textbooks, but they put a spin on it. They put a spin on it, and uh, they would say, you know, I can't quite remember, but that, uh, that Israel didn't start the war, certainly. Yeah. And Sammy, have you seen that in a textbook that you, have you taught? 
just, yeah, that the 1967 war happened and that Israel won, but that it occupied land, UN Resolution 242. Nope, that's not in there. So it happened. It literally is two sentences. No, it's just what just happened. Incredible. Anything else? Anybody? Uh, I see somebody here in the in the uh, in the chat mentions Zohrot, which is an incredibly important um, NGO dedicated to the memory of uh, the destroyed towns and villages in Palestine. Uh, Zohrot means like remembering, or you know, it's 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 it was it was it was founded by a bunch of a group of Israeli women activists. And they do tremendous work. They offer tours. They've got incredible educational um, resources. And now they have a, a new thing, which is imagining the return, a real, a real uh, campaign of imagining return and what return is going to look like and so forth. So uh, it's, in the, it's in the chat if anybody wants to take a look at it. It's an incredible um, organization. And I believe, yeah. And I, in fact, I did one of my one of my very first podcasts was with um, a good friend of mine, Omar, who is uh, uh, works with Zuchrot. He's one of their guides and one of their. Uh, he's a great resource as well. So, if anybody wants to look back at, at that at that podcast um, and at their information on their website, they've got a map. They've got all incredible stuff. So that's a really really good good resource about uh, particularly about 1948. Um, does anybody have anything else they want to add before we close? I, 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 I want to answer one question um, that was posed. We are starting to build a broader coalition and to join forces with the uh, African-Americans and the Asian-Americans because they are regarded as the other in textbooks as well. We feel that if we build a broad coalition, then maybe we can influence uh, the people in the Virginia Department of Education. Uh, we all have similar issues. Um, the information is biased and inaccurate about the African-Americans, about the Asians as well. And so that has been our latest uh, effort. We, uh, there was a reference to passing a bill. We lobbied hard for a culturally responsive, educational, inclusive bill in the Virginia legislature. We lobbied hard to get the word Islamophobia in there, and we lobbied hard to get um, Middle East experts on that committee so that the curriculum of Virginia will have more information about disenfranchised groups. And I think that that is a, a model. People have really got to look at their state legislators. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, uh, Samia, Zoha, and uh, Jean, thank you so much for your valuable time and, and, and thank contribution. Thank you for having us. And the great work that yeah, you all Yeah, thank you for putting this together. It was very informative Absolutely. for me. Yeah, uh, me too. I'm learning so much. I really appreciate all three of you. Thanks, Jamil, for doing what you do, for helping out, and then Michael behind the scenes there. And we had, uh, I think, at one point around 150 participants or so. Uh, so thank you all for tuning in, and we'll be back next week with another panel, fantastic panel, to continue talking about this. Um, and so many of the message of the comments here on the um, on the chat are saying that this has been a great uh, a great panel. So that's a reflection on on the three of you. So thank you again so much, and um, we'll keep up the good work and see you all soon. Goodbye. Good thank luck. you so much. Bye. Take care. Bye.